Well, good morning, Village Church. Uh, can we just say Happy Mother's Day to all the moms here this morning? Can we do that, huh? Happy Mother's Day, moms. Grateful for you. You know, um, one of the things about moms is that uh, they want their families to flourish, don't they? I mean, if you think about moms, moms want their families to be full of life and vitality. They want their children to flourish. They want their families to flourish. They want their homes to feel like a place where their families can flourish. And I want to tell you something this morning. That is straight from the heart of God. When we see that in the moms in this room and in the moms that we'll visit when we leave this place, that's straight from the heart of God. That is God's heart for his children. And the Bible says, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us as Christians that we might be called children of God. This is God's heart for us. He wants vitality in life for us. He wants us to flourish, not only as individuals, but as a family, as a church family, he wants us to flourish. And that has been, in a sense, part of this sermon series, which is called Church Alive. Jesus wants his church to flourish. He wants his family to flourish. He wants his children to flourish individually, And collectively, as a family, this is what he wants for us. The sort of caveat we've been learning about over the last couple of weeks as we've looked at Paul's trial is that the more life the church has, the more it flourishes, the more it finds itself under trial. And if you're a mom, you know that's part of life. You've seen it in your kids, especially if your kids are grown. You've seen that your kids go through seasons of real flourishing, and maybe in the back of your mind, you're, you're thinking to yourself, oh, they're there might just sort of be this season of testing around the corner because you know enough through wisdom to know that that's the way life works. That's the way God works. God sows these things into our lives in in different ways and in different seasons to grow us into the people that he wants us to be. And there are seasons where our children really thrive and there are other seasons where they're going through trial. Paul is literally on a trial. He's in a trial. He's standing trial. Not like a trial that's something hard in life, although that is. Paul is literally in a trial. He's on trial for his faith in Jesus. Jesus said it would be this way in Luke chapter 12. Luke records it before he writes the book of Acts. He records this. And and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers of the authorities, Jesus says, and when they bring you, is the way Jesus says it. So this is the third week in our sermon series on the trial of Paul, and that says something, that Luke has taken this long to show us some things about Paul's trial. I think it tells us that Luke Luke is trying to use Paul as a primary example of what the Christian life can and probably will at some point look like. That every Christian should expect that at some time, in some way, in some shape, in some form, that we will, in a sense, be put on trial. It could, be, it could be public. It could be before public officials and politicians and public religious leaders like, like Paul's in front of the last few weeks. It, it could be the social media mob, you know. It could just be your friends who sort of put you on trial and ask you questions, cross-examine you. It could be your family, your coworkers. At some point, either privately or publicly, you and I as Christians will likely find ourselves on trial, so to speak. The question is, how should we respond when we are? I think we can learn some things here in starting in Acts chapter 25. Look at, look at the first few verses with me. Verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Don't you love that word? Great pomp. 
And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So just get the picture. All kinds of important people. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he should no longer live. Shouldn't be able to live. What has he done? But he says, but I found that he has done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Isn't that it? Seems, seems unreasonable to send a prisoner not indicating the charges against him. So I'm, this is not in the notes. It, it's not in the slides, but I'm going to give you one extra thing. And I might regret this. This might, this might bring me an email or something like this, but I just I feel like I got to pause and say, maybe here's a lesson you could write down that's, that's not on the slide. But when Christians are on trial, it will likely be irrational. I mean, th- doesn't this seem irrational? He's saying, look, I don't know the charges. I don't think he's done anything wrong. He doesn't do anything deserving death. But here he is. Everyone's just sort of yelling and screaming and pressing him into me, and I have to make a decision. It seems unreasonable to send a prisoner not indicating the charges that are against him. There's this mob mentality that's going on, and I just want to pause and say I recognize that some of you may think we are kind of moving into that season in, in the life of our cultural context, and we may be. I mean, there are churches that are meeting this morning for fear of being defamed or damaged or whatever, just the issue of abortion, for example. I, I saw something this week that I just thought, oh man, that makes so sense. And it makes so much sense why there's so much vitriol a- around all of this. It- it's demonic in a sense because, because abortion is anti-gospel. The gospel says, Jesus says, I give my life for you. Abortion says, you give your life for me. You give your life for my convenience. You give 99% of the time, you give your life for my convenience. You give your life for, 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 for my, you know, my, my life, for, for my wants, for, I could go on. Abortion is anti-gospel. You give your life for me. Jesus says, no, I give my life for you. It's totally backwards. It's demonic, which is why there's, there's a sort of mob mentality around it. We have brothers and sisters meet today just because they are Christians, people will treat them a certain way. All right, well, with that said, here's what I was going to say. (laughs) When Christians are on trial, it's not wrong or ungodly for them to appeal to their rights. Some of you are thinking in the back of your mind, did you just say that? When Christians are on trial, it's not wrong or ungodly for them to appeal to their rights. Did you see what Festus said? And he himself appealed to the emperor. And we already saw that in Acts chapter 22, verse 25, when, when he had stretched him out for the whips, they're going to whip Paul. Paul said to the centurion, he was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? You see, Roman citizens were not to be bound, and they were certainly not to be flogged until they were proven guilty. But here he is innocent until proven guilty. Paul knows he has rights as a Roman citizen, and he appeals to them. He's like, I don't want to be bound, and I don't want to be flogged unless I deserve it. Makes sense. I think sometimes as Christians, we have this tension between laying down our rights and appealing to our rights. And over the last couple of years, especially surrounding all that's, that's gone on with 
COVID and all of that, you know, all the regulations and from state to state and county to county, it's, it's been this thing like, when do we lay down our rights and when do we appeal to our rights? And I think many Christians think we never appeal to our rights for anything. But, but here Paul is appealing to his rights. It's interesting. There's something else we can learn about how we're to respond when we're put on trial. I think it, we see it as we look at Paul's response. Look at verse 1 to 3 of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hands and he made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa, and I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently, which I think tells us another lesson, is that when Christians are on trial, it's not wrong or ungodly for them to give a defense for what they believe and for how they live. When Christians are put on trial, it's not wrong and it's not ungodly for Christians to give a defense for what they believe and for how they live. You see, too often, too many Christians, I think, have been taught and believed that there's something wrong with giving a defense for what we believe and the way that we live, that it's not acting like Jesus when we give a defense. And sometimes we cite Isaiah 53 in places like that. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led before the slaughter and like sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, we know Jesus opened not his mouth to prevent what he knew was God's plan from the foundation of the world. We do know that Jesus did open his mouth in a sense. They asked him, are you the Christ? You have said so, things like this. We know from the trial account of Jesus that it's not that he didn't open his mouth ever, but it's what he didn't do when he opened his mouth. Peter, one of Jesus' best friends and closest disciples, reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Listen, as Christians, we do not need to revile and we do not need to threaten and we ought not. But it doesn't mean we should never open our mouth. Matter of fact, Peter says we should open our mouth. One chapter later in 1 Peter chapter 3 may be a familiar passage to many of you. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Well, we see today even when Christians do do good, sometimes people do want to harm Christians for doing good. Which is why Peter says, but even if you should suffer... For righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense. It's not that Christians never make a defense. It's that they are always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And Jesus himself affirms that we can and we should give a defense for what we believe and for how we live. Back to Luke chapter 12 where he says, And when they, not if, but when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers of the authorities, do not... Be anxious 
about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. When we talk about this kind of defense as Christians, we usually use this term apologetics. This is familiar to many of us if you're not yet a Christian. It's not a Christian word. It's just a word Christians have adopted to talk about how we defend or prove, so to speak, the things that we believe. Apologetics is a reasoned argument or writings to justify something. This is true in all kinds of areas of life. It is true of the Christian life. And as Christians, we have some incredible reasoned arguments for the things that we believe. Like, we know that God exists. And that's not just because it's wishful thinking or something we just want to believe, but there's a lot of evidence to prove that God exists. And there's all kinds of arguments to prove the existence of God. People use the cosmological argument or the, the idea of the uncaused cause in the end or the way that the universe has expanded and all kinds of scientists, uh, a lot of leading scientists, you know, are, are really keen on the idea of an intelligent designer. Like, this is not irrational. It's a very, very rational thing to believe. But as Christians, we not only believe that God exists, we believe that, that, that he is come to us in the person of Jesus Christ and that the Bible has revealed that to us and that the Bible is reliable. <laughs> I mean, many of you have seen this chart and I, and I just, I, I pulled it up and I stretched it. So it's going to look a little weird, but there you go, right? But you can just see, I hope you can see the, the, the historical documents that many people see as the most reliable documents in history and how the Bible stacks up to them. And in particular, if you look at the New Testament, and you see that the New Testament, the gap in its years is only 50. Look at the gap in all the other years. And look at the over 5,800 copies of the New Testament. And think about how much more reliable the Bible is, especially the New Testament as you look at it and the life and ministry of Jesus and what it says to any other historical document that many historians just take carte blanche. Like, look, this is not irrational. What you believe is very rational. And as Christians, we not only believe that, that God exists and he came to us in the per person of Jesus, but we believe he lived a life we could never live, a perfectly sinless life before God, that he died the death that we should have died on the cross and in our place and for our sins, and that he rose from death. The resurrection of Jesus is a very rational thing to believe. All of the lines of evidence, and I'll talk about them a little bit more this morning. But this morning, Luke shows us that there is an even better line of reasoning, and we might not expect it. And I say, well, what's a better line of reasoning than, than, than the way the universe expands and the reliability of the Bible when you stack it up to, to all the other things in, of, of, of writings of antiquity and the resurrection of Jesus and all the lines of evidence that, that prove that Jesus did in fact rise from death? What could be more convincing than that? This morning we're going to see when Christians are on trial, their best defense can be their testimony. That's because most people don't come to faith in Jesus by finding flawless answers to their questions. Last night at um, my daughter's graduation from college, you know, I, I bumped into a guy and I had another guy from our church worked with him and was sharing the gospel with him. And, and I went to a lunch with him and I remember sitting down and answering some of his questions, kind of an apologetics type thing. And, and now this guy has come to faith and he's married and his wife is pregnant. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're married. You're going to have a kid and just his life has gone on. But you know what brought him to faith was not all the answers that I and Jaron gave him. It's most likely Jaron's life lived in front of him. P. 
people find flawed people who have been undeniably transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and they can't deny it. That's what brings people to faith by God's grace. A life radically transformed by the good news of Jesus is the most reliable argument. It's the most convincing apologetic. And you all, if you're in Christ, you all have it. You have the most convincing argument in your life, in the life of Christ in you and through you. And this is why I believe Luke records Paul giving his testimony three times in the book of Acts. Paul's, Luke's trying to tell us something. Our lives are the reasoned writings in human form. That's at least what Paul told the Corinthians. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink by the spirit of the, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul saying, you are the evidence. The Corinthian church, a people totally transformed by the gospel, you're the evidence. You might be saying, well, if that's true, <laughs> What's the most effective way I can give my testimony? And again, I think Luke gives us an example in the life of Paul three times. If you've been in an apprentice academy here at the Village Church, you know this little progression. And I think maybe I've mentioned before, but I heard this over 20 years ago and it just kind of stuck. And I think this is the progression. I was, Jesus did, and I am. That's as simple as it is. All you need to know is I was, and Jesus did, and now I am. And this is what we see Luke recording. And it starts with the I am phase, starting in verse nine. Look at it with me. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews. O king, why is it thought incredible that by any of you that, that God would raise the dead? I myself was convinced that I had to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Paul's saying like, this is who I was. And again, Luke shows us this three times in the book of Acts, and it's for a reason. Paul's saying, I was religious. That's my story. I was genuinely religious. That too is my story. I was a religious zealot and fanatic and terrorist. That is not my story. <laughs> but I was genuinely religious. But Paul was a religious zealot fanatic. Like think about the things that you see from the Middle East that disgust you. That was him. I was a murderer, Paul is saying. This is who I was. What about you? Who were you when Jesus revealed himself to you before he revealed himself to you. I mean, some of you were very religious people doing all the right things, following all the rules, and you were dead and there was no life in it. 
And others of you were very rebellious. <laughs> right? You ran really far away. You broke all the rules and, 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 and you were proud of it. And it led you into things that you never thought you'd do or see or say. And all along you're hoping that someone would drag you out while bragging to everyone about what you've done. I was, Jesus did. Jesus did something. Look at verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, which is amazing. <laughs> He's speaking his language. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Why do you oppose me this way? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things to which you have seen in me and those in which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of their sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul saying, I was religious, I was genuinely religious, I was a religious zealot and fanatic and terrorist, I was a murderer, but Jesus, Jesus revealed himself to me. Do you remember when he revealed himself to you? Jesus showed himself to me, probably not on a road like he did to Paul, but in a way that was just right for you. Paul needed to be, you know, punched to the ground by Jesus, so to speak, you know. He needed to be put on his back. Jesus knew what you needed, didn't he? He came to you in just the way that was right for you. Paul's saying, Jesus revealed himself to me. Jesus revealed his purposes to me. And Jesus revealed his purposes for humanity to me. Like, Jesus showed himself to me. He showed, he showed me my part in, in something much bigger than myself. And he showed me what he wanted for all kinds of people. And he invited me into it. And he's done that with each and every one of you who have placed your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? What has Jesus done for you? You remember the day that Jesus revealed himself to you? Jesus, I was, Jesus did, I am. Look at verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn from God, performing deeds and keeping to, with repentance. Now we get the reason why Paul's on trial. This is the reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Listen, people don't put Christians on trial for what they do. No one's going to put us on trial because we built all the hospitals and built orphanages and rehab centers and because we, we contribute to the poor and we help with the needs of those and we serve special needs kids and like all of the things that we do that, that the government could never do on its own. All the things that Christians have done throughout history. No one's putting us on trial for that. They don't put us on trial for what we do. They put us on trial for what we think and what we believe and what we say about Jesus. It's always been like this. 
Probably always will be. It was like that for Paul. This is the reason. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul's saying, I was religious. I was super religious. I was a zealot. I was... I was a religious terrorist. I was a murderer. But Jesus showed himself to me, revealed himself to me, revealed his plan for me, revealed his plan for the world. And now I'm, I place my faith and my hope and a trust in him. And I am a changed person. I've repented. I've changed. I'm different. This is no longer who I am. I'm Paul now, not Saul. And I'm obedient. I want to obey Jesus. I want to follow him. I'm confident. I have a rational faith that I'm confident in. It's not a fairy tale. It's faith but it's a rational faith. I'm confident, and, I'm a, and because of that, I'm an evangelist. I'm gonna tell everyone. Paul's life is radically changed. What about you? How has Jesus changed you? How is your life different today than it was then? Obedient and confident and an evangelist, willing to tell anyone what Jesus has done for you because what he's done is so amazing. I want to pause for a moment. I want to ask you to see something in this story. You, know, you, you might leave here this morning. You might say, okay, I was, Jesus did, I am. I know how to share my story. And there's lots of talk in the contemporary church about sharing your, quote, story. I, I want you to see that there's always an opportunity to share the gospel when you share your story, when you share your testimony. Because you and I, we have no testimony without the testimony of the gospel. Amen. We have no testimony without the testimony of the gospel. You can go somewhere and hear a seminar and someone says, share your story with someone that doesn't know Jesus. And I want to tell you, without the gospel, you're telling your story. But with the gospel, you're giving your testimony. And the difference between your story and your testimony, listen to me, your story is amazing. You're a person that is created in the image and likeness of God with dignity and value and worth and you are growing as a person and you're flourishing and that's amazing. Your story is amazing. You know whose story is more amazing? Jesus and his great plan for not only you but for humanity and the way that shows itself and demonstrates itself in and through your life. That's the more amazing story. So listen, you all are amazing people and you have an amazing story. There's only one person that has a more amazing story than you, and that is the story to tell. Amen? And it can be told through our story. Praise God. When Christians share their story, they should always include the resurrection of Jesus because that's part of his story. And it's the thing that's changed our story. Our testimony is not about Jesus living, just about Jesus living and dying. It, it has to include the reality of Jesus rising and proving who he said he was and what he came to do. And that's why, that's why Paul's story starts and ends with the resurrection. Did you notice that? Well, actually, we haven't got to the end, so maybe you didn't notice that. <laughs> but let me show you. Look at verse 8 where it says, Why is it thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Verse 8. And now at the end of the story and verse 22 to 23, to this day I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ would suffer, 
that being the first to be to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul's story, his testimony is bookended with the resurrection, and there's a reason. It's because everything about the Christian faith rises or falls on the reality of the resurrection. That's what Paul told the Corinthians, this church that had been radically changed by the good news of Jesus. He said, for the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, those who have died have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we're of all men to be most pitied. That's what Paul told the Corinthian church. And this is why Paul starts and ends his testimony with the resurrection, I believe. It is, it is an historical event. It's recorded in history. It's tested empirically. Like, it's a rational thing to talk about. And so Paul's not afraid to talk about it. And he includes it in his testimony. It's something that everyone in that day knew. Acts 28, 26, 26. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. Paul speaks boldly about the resurrection. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. I mean, Jesus was dragged outside of the city and hung on a cross between two criminals. And, and he was crucified and he, and he died there on that cross. And, and, and the sky went dark and the temple was torn in two and a great earthquake happened. And historians know it. Everybody knows it. It didn't happen in a corner. Agrippa knew it. Everyone knew it. Most people today know it. That have heard the story, they know it. This is a rational thing to think about because we have all kinds of evidence. I just want to pause for a minute. I know, I know I went through this on Easter just a few weeks ago, but we have eyewitness evidence and testimony. Like Peter saw Jesus alive. James, <laughs> the brother of Jesus, saw him alive. If anyone would, would, would tell you if he was really Jesus, the brother would tell you, you know? Yeah, I've wrestled that guy, you know? I pulled out that beard. You know, I know who that is, right? <laughs> the 12 disciples, over 500 witnesses at one time. And we've been through this. If there was an accident outside and 500 people saw it, like, it happened. That's the way things are proven in court. There's character witness, right? Like, disciples are totally changed. Paul, the ultimate example of a man who's transformed. The Corinthian church that we've been talking about this morning. An entire group of people that have been changed and transformed. There's circumstantial evidence. There's, well, there's an empty tomb. <laughs> that says something, Right? The disciples have no means to steal the body. The Romans and the Jews have no motive to steal the body. I mean, we could go on and on. There's extra biblical evidence. Josephus is the one we most often cite, a Jewish historian. Why would he have any reason to record it the way it happened? But he did. Okay, so your testimony may be the greatest apologetic in the life of anyone that comes to faith in Jesus. And... And it's going to include something about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus because that's part of his story. That's part of God's redemptive story. How should we expect people to respond to this? And we're going to end our time this morning with this. Three responses that we see in this story. Look at the first one. Some people will belittle it. Some people will belittle it. And that's, that's Festus. Now listen, what I'm, saying, what, I'm, what I'm not saying is that people will belittle your story. Most people are going to they're going to they're gonna love your story. Like if you share your story with them, and even if you include the gospel as part of your story, you know what they're going to say? They're going to say something like, you know what? That is so great for you. 
that's really great for you. And I'm so glad that you found something that's helpful to you. And they genuinely mean it. You got a good friend when they tell you that. Like they're, they're telling you the best they know how. That's really great. I'm, I'm really happy for you. They're not going to belittle you or your story. They're, but there will, some will belittle the, the gospel story. The gospel is not a story. The gospel reality. This is what Festus does. And as he was saying these things in his defense, verse 24, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. You don't need to yell. (laughs) But I'm speaking true and rational words. Can we just talk quietly and rationally here? I'm, I'm speaking true and rational words. You see, even though Festus acknowledges Paul's knowledge, he, he won't let it be applied to the idea of the resurrection of Jesus and the reality of the way that resurrection changed Paul's life. You see, the easiest thing for you and I to do when we don't understand something is to do what? To belittle it, to make fun of it. When we don't understand something or we don't want to understand something, we make fun of it. That's what we do. We belittle it. That's what Festus is doing. He's, you're out of your mind on this stuff, this resurrection thing. The resurrection is not something to belittle because it's not false and it's not irrational. It's true and it's very rational. Why is it so amazing to think that God would raise the dead? That's what Paul says. Some people will avoid it. That's Agrippa's story. Look at verse 26. For the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Some people, some people belittle it. Some people just avoid this. Like even though Agrippa knew about the anticipation of the resurrection among the Jews and the claim of the resurrection of Jesus and the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, he's avoiding dealing with it because he's afraid of the implications of it. And lots of people, this is their reality. They avoid it because they don't want to deal with the implications. If Jesus really did rise from death, that means something, and I don't really want to think about that. Agrippa does what many of your coworkers, your friends, your family have done. Maybe what you did when someone was sharing the gospel with you, they say, I need more time. I need to do a little bit more research. I need to look at the evidence again. I need to think about this a little bit. You know what? That's great. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, we think that's great. But I think we all just admit that there comes a point where it's like, hey, you, like, you know the story, you know the evidence, you've seen it all, like talked about it. It's like, it's what it is. And Agrippa's like, yeah, I, I need a little bit more time. You, gonna, you want me to become a Christian like right now? I don't think so, not right now. I'll, I'll talk to you later about that. Some people belittle it, some people avoid it. You know what the unbelievable reality is? Is that some people, listen to me, they believe it. Some people are going to believe it. That's Paul's story. Paul believed it. And you're going to share the gospel story. You're going to share your testimony with people. And some of them will belittle the gospel. Some of them will avoid it. And some of them will believe it. And Paul said, whether short or long, Agrippa, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Well, except for these chains. 
See, although Paul was formerly resisting and belittling and avoiding the resurrection of Jesus and the truth of the gospel, now he's believing it. Some will belittle it, some will avoid it, <laughs> and some, by God's grace, will believe it. So that gives us hope and that we should be the people that share it, right? Jesus has commanded us to share it. Listen, if you're a Christian this morning, you have a faith that's based on facts. It's not just feelings. Your faith is true. It's rational. Okay? I hope you believe that. If you're not yet a Christian this morning and, and you've resisted the idea of the resurrection, maybe you've belittled it, maybe you've avoided it, even though it's historical and there's a forensic reality and perspective and evidence, I just encourage you that this is not something to avoid or to belittle. It's something to, to investigate and it's something to believe ultimately. And our hope would be that you'd believe in the resurrection of Jesus and you'd find the, the life and the vitality, you know, that he wants for you. Paul says that those who receive the truth about Jesus in light of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, they, they will receive something great. And this is where we end our time together this morning. Look at verse 18. We're reminded when Paul shares his story, he says that, that Jesus revealed himself to him, that Jesus revealed his plan for his life, and that Jesus revealed his plan for the, the lives of, of all those who would place their faith and trust in him. And this is what it is, to open their eyes, that they might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of their sins, and a place among those who are sanctified in faith in me. The kind of life that Jesus wants for you, if you're not yet a Christian, is the ability to see that God is real and who he really is. A life that's lived in the light of God's love. The things that he wants for you are good. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to live a life of, of vitality and joy that you are forgiven for your sin, your hope and your trust in Jesus, believing that he died on the cross and in your place to forgive your sin, the Son of God sent to do that. And that you get an invitation to the people of God, that you could be part of God's family, part of God's church, and, and we'd invite you into the family, especially on first Sunday, they're great. So stick around for a few weeks. We're gonna have a big barbecue or something outside the first week in June, and we're all gonna share our life together. And we do that all the time, but it's gonna be a moment. We'd love to invite you into that and share with you more about who Jesus is and what he's done. I think this is the good news for us this morning, or it's, it's kind of connected to it. The Village Church, we always wanna give you good news. We believe Jesus is good. And this morning, it's something like this, that Jesus has shared his life with us and invites us to share his life with others, even in the midst of trial. And those trials might actually give us the best opportunity. Would you pray with me? I think every Christian this morning here, Lord, probably just pauses and says, thank you for including us in your story the way that you have. We, we thank you that our story is, is wonderful because of you. <laughs> but, but that you've included us in your story, that, that we're part of those people that that you know would come to faith and hope and trust in you from the foundation of the world, that, that you knew we would be your sons and your daughters. That when you looked you know, outside of time over all of redemptive history, you saw us and you invited us in. Lord, we were religious and we were rebellious 
whatever it was, you revealed yourself to us and you came to us and you lived for us and you died for us and you rose for us and, and you caused us to have our eyes open to see that reality. And we just want to say thank you. And so our response is worship. You know, we, we sing to you now because of who you are and what you've done. We, we take communion when we're ready because we, we've, we're thinking about what you did for us as your body was given, as your blood was shed. And so our response are worship and gratitude and joy and thankfulness. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. We ask these things in your name and for your sake. Amen.